Hi, thanks for listening to Him We Proclaim with John Fonville. Today is the start of a new series called How to Keep Going. How do we keep going in the Christian life when sometimes we find ourselves walking in darkness and we just don't see any light of our own? What about when we feel completely overwhelmed by our failures? When life is just not working out the way we imagined or planned? Well, we're going to look at several encouraging insights in this mini-series, so thanks for joining us. Let's dive in now. Here's John with How to Keep Going, Part 2. When you get to Genesis chapter 9, Noah and his family disembark from the ark, and they come into the new creation that God has created from the floodwaters of judgment. And as soon as they come out of the ark, Noah and his family are still inclined to evil. Okay, so here comes the Jerry Springer best of. Genesis chapter 9, verses 21 through 23, we're told that Noah became drunk and he lies in a drunken, naked stupor for the world to see. That's pretty bad. Ham, his son, shamefully, in verse 22, looks on the drunkenness and nakedness of his father in the tent and he reports it to his brothers. Now, the text doesn't tell us clearly what happened, but it's clear from the context to just say tactfully that Ham humiliated and dishonored his father, and he sought to make his brothers a part of that humiliation. Shameful what took place here. I told you this was Jerry Springer moment. This narrative is quite clear that Noah and his family are at their very best one and the same time, righteous and sinful. The Genesis narrative makes it clear that Noah does not possess perfect faith. He doesn't have certain virtues or good works which qualified him to receive God's favor because that would undermine the meaning of grace. No sinful rebel deserves God's grace and to be rescued from judgment. And he was just rescued from judgment not because he was righteous and earned grace, but because God was gracious to him and delivered him, though he was still inclined to evil, you see. He wasn't anything in himself, and he did nothing to move God to give him grace. The emphasis on Noah finding grace in the eyes of the Lord lies in what God does for the man on whom his favor rests. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That is sovereign, free, unmerited grace. Listen, he rescues Noah and his family despite their ongoing sin. Look at this picture up here. There are eight people in that ark being carried through the floodwaters of judgment, and they're all inclined to sin. And when they come out of that great deliverance, they do this shameful deed, but God still delivered them because he had favor on them. And so the example of Noah shows us that God's grace is the cause of unrighteous people becoming righteous. This is why Noah was righteous. The example of Noah shows us that God's grace is an attitude of God for the good of those who do not deserve the good. 
There wasn't a single person inside that ark being carried safely through judgment that deserved it. That's the point of the text. They were just as bad as a whole world that drowned in the floodwaters of judgment, but God had grace upon them. All right, that's the first Jerry Springer superstar. Here's the second one, Abraham. The quintessential example of faith for all believers. And just like the story of Noah, the story of Abraham is a story of grace. As with Noah, there's nothing special about Abraham that deserves the goodness of God in promising him such tremendous blessings. This is how Graham Goldsworthy says it, and it's wonderful how he states it. He says, there's no hint that God was responding to Abraham's goodness. On the contrary, the narrative about Abraham is brutally honest in his warts and all portrayal of the patriarch. You see, the, the, the whole account of Abraham makes it clear that he deserves nothing of what the Lord promises him. Nothing. First of all, his faith is far from perfect. Genesis chapter 15, verses 2 and 3, his faith is not strong and at times borders on disbelief. Genesis chapter 12, 11 through 20, Genesis chapter 20, verses 1 through 18, he's not, he's not above lying about his wife on two separate occasions to save his own hide. I don't know about you, but you'd be in the doghouse if you did that today when you went home, right? <laughs> Big trouble. He's a liar. He is a deceiver. He sacrifices his wife to save his own hide. And then he works to undermine God's promise that Sarah would have a son. He works against God to thwart God's promise, which is unbelief because he didn't believe at that point when he was, he was wavering. He was similar, used to say, Pekater. He was at his very best, just like Noah, one in the same time, righteous and just, but sinful. And so the narrative about Abraham emphasizes God's goodness to Abraham is not deserved and narrative of Abraham highlights God's free and sovereign grace to justify the ungodly. That's exactly what Paul says in Romans 4 when he uses Abraham as the example of one who is ungodly that God justifies by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, the ungodly. And he also uses the example of David. So this brings us to the third best of Jerry Springer, David. King David. What about David? Well, we're told all we're told over and over and over, but he's a man after God's own heart. He is the hero. He is the giant slayer. And here's how it goes. Listen very carefully. He is God's anointed king who defeats giants, and you too, like David, can defeat the giants in your life. Like David, we all have to meet the Goliaths in our lives, but we can defeat them with our sling of faith and our five stones of virtue, obedience, service, Bible reading, prayer, and fellowship. That's not how we read David. Just like the stories of Noah and Abraham, the narrative about David is a story of grace. I don't have time to rehearse the whole life of David from 1 and 2 Samuel, but let me give you the highlights 
Because despite David's pious devotion, being a man after God's own heart, he's remembered also as one of history's greatest sinners. And so like Abraham and like Noah, the biblical narrative about David is brutally honest and it's warts and all portrayal of David. So just very quickly, there's the famous story of David's adultery with Bathsheba. You know that. There's a subsequent murder of her husband, Uriah. So here's Jerry Springer. We have a drunken man who's naked, who does shameful, whose son does shameful things to his father. That sounds like Jerry Springer. We have Abraham who's lying, deceiving, manipulating, unfaithful husband. That sounds like Jerry Springer. We have David, he commits adultery, cheats on his wife. That definitely sounds like Jerry Springer. He commits murder. That doesn't sound, that's worse than Jerry Springer. He commits murder. He commits murder. And then there's Psalm 51, which is probably the best known of the penitential psalms that David composed as a result of Nathan the prophet convicting him, you're the man of committing adultery with Bathsheba and for arranging for the murder of her husband. And David begins his prayer, have mercy on me. It's the first thing he says. Oh God, according to your steadfast love, where does that come from? The Davidic covenant the Abrahamic covenant. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity from which I feel so filthy and defiled by and cleanse me from my sin. And so it's clear when we read about the narrative of David that he, like Noah and Abraham, at his very best, is one in the same time righteous and sinner. David doesn't deserve the goodness of God in promising him such tremendous blessings from the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel 7. The whole story of David testifies, listen, not to David the superhero who slays giants, but to the steadfast love of the Lord who is unfailing, faithful to his covenant promise despite David's failures. This is what the psalmist in Psalm 89, verse 37 tells us. The psalmist says that the Lord's promise to David was established forever like the moon in the skies. Like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. The psalmist says that the only way for God's promise in the Davidic covenant to be broken is for God to lie, which God can never do. Listen carefully what the psalmist says would not break God's steadfast love and covenant promise to, to David, to bring a righteous son of David to rule on his throne forevermore. Listen to what did not break his promise. Listen, it was not David's adultery and it was not his murder. That is shocking. It was God said, I'll break it if I lie and I can't lie, so I'm not gonna break it. Grace, steadfast love. And so listen, I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness. That's what we sing about this morning. So I was telling you, God's not like us. 
if I was like God and David did what he did, you're done. Done, right? But I have sworn by my holiness, I'm nothing like you. I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. God's promise to David just awaited the arrival of the righteous son of David, which is Jesus Christ. And it is in Christ that we most clearly see the steadfast love of the Lord. All right, so here's our fourth best of as we finish. The, the apostle Peter, the great apostle to the Jews. The New Testament reveals that Peter struggled with great sin before Pentecost and after Pentecost. After the coming and outpouring of the abundance of the Holy Spirit, he still struggled. The, the Peter's list of sins in the Gospels are huge. So let me just give you a couple. Luke chapter 22, verse 24, one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible on the night before Jesus' crucifixion, Peter is filled with selfish ambition as he argues with the disciples about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. In Matthew chapter 16, Peter seeks to prevent Jesus from accomplishing the single greatest reason that he came, which was to die on the cross to save his people from their sins. <laughs> and in response, Jesus severely rebukes Peter, Matthew 16, 23. Listen to this rebuke. I mean, if anything would make you melt, this would have been it. Get behind me, Satan. Gosh, you are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Don't prevent me from dying on the cross for you, Peter. Peter resists Jesus when he says that he is going to wash Peter's feet. Peter says to Jesus, quote, no, you shall never wash my feet. The hubris. John 13a, Jesus corrects Peter, Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. If I can't serve you, if I can't be your servant, Peter, forget it. I can't save you. In the moment of great temptation, Peter fails to pray with Jesus. Instead, he falls asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus finds Peter and the apostles sleeping, disciples sleeping. He says to them, the flesh is weak, but the spirit is willing. Pray that you may not fall into temptation. Matthew chapter 26, Peter denies Jesus with oaths and cursing, swearing, foul mouth to a little slave girl. Matthew chapter 26, verse 75, after Peter does this horrific sin of denying Jesus, horrific sin. Matthew says, Peter, remember the word which Jesus had said before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. How many of you have wept like that over your sin? I have. 
You just weep, you breathe, you can't sleep, you can't eat. After Pentecost, when Peter is in Antioch, he pulls back from meeting with the Gentiles out of fear of the circumcision party. And his hypocrisy was so bad, it threatened to undermine the heart of the gospel, justification by grace through faith in Christ alone, and forever divide the Jewish and Gentile church forever. It was a grievous sin that he committed in Antioch as an apostle. It was so bad that Paul, Galatians chapter 2, verse 14, says to Peter and the Jews who followed him in his hypocrisy, Peter, you're not, quote, being straightforward about the truth of the gospel. Peter, you are seeking to undermine the gospel. And note carefully, this is the second time in the biblical narrative that records Peter's attempt to undermine the gospel. Before Pentecost, he sought to undermine the gospel. And after Pentecost, he sought to undermine the gospel. So great is his sin that Paul confronts Peter publicly in front of the church. And he says in Galatians chapter 2, listen to this paraphrase. I said to Cephas, Peter, in the presence of all, so everybody could hear Paul confront Peter's sin. He says, Peter, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews here in Antioch, how is it that you, Peter, now compel the Jews here in Antioch to live like the Jews? He says, Peter, he says, Peter, you and I both are Jews by nature. We're not sinners from among the Gentiles, but know this, Peter, nevertheless, Listen, you got to know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, keeping the Mosaic Covenant, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we, Peter, who are Jews, you and I have believed in Christ Jesus so that we, Peter, may be justified by faith in Christ and not by keeping the Mosaic Covenant, since by keeping the works of the law, neither Jew nor Gentile will be justified before God. That's what he said to Peter in front of the whole church. And so here again, we see clearly from the biblical narrative that Peter, like Noah, Abraham, and David, at his very best, was one and the same time righteous and sinful. And like Noah, Abraham, David, Peter's life testifies to and emphasizes God's free and sovereign grace. But in every instance where Peter fails in Scripture, listen to the summary of Jesus' responses. To, to Peter's sin, Jesus instructs him, corrects him, prays for him that his faith does not fail, rebukes him, dies for him, is buried for him, raised for him, restores him, and recommissions him back to his apostolic calling, but he never once throughout anywhere in the gospels rejects him or condemns him. What Jesus always did for Peter was call Peter into a greater understanding of who he is and why he came. In other words, he led Peter to a deeper understanding of the gospel at every point of his failure. That is how he kept Peter going on. Because it would be Jesus by his power and grace who would carry him to the finish line. Just like in this ark, 
God delivered Noah and his wicked family through those floodwaters of judgment, not because they deserted, but he carried them by his power and his grace. This is what Peter would write later on near the end of his life in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy, his grace, his favor, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of the dead to obtain an inheritance, to obtain it certainty which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, listen, who are protected by the power of God through faith. Peter learned that hard lesson that it was Jesus when he told him, he says, Peter, you're going to deny me, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you turn again, strengthen the brothers with this message of grace, that through my power and grace, I'll keep you and I'll carry you to the finish line. Peter learned this lesson. He says, we're protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready, ready to be revealed in the last time. And so we see how Scripture testifies to the mixed nature of the Christian life, this reality of one and the same time righteous and just. And if you want to keep going on, look to the lives of every one of these Jerry Springer moments because that is your moment that you're looking at. And that is God who is faithful to you to preserve and keep you. So here it is. How do you keep going on when you're walking in darkness and do not see any light of your own? First, have a realistic understanding of the Christian life, this side of the new heavens, the new earth. Avoid all forms of perfectionism, which offer false hope. And turn to Christ again and again. Second, consider the mixed nature of the lives of believers throughout redemptive history. The biblical narratives of Abraham, Noah, David, and Peter, they all reveal that at their very best, one in the same time, righteous and sinful. And this is exactly what our lives reveal as well. The biblical narratives of Noah, Abraham, David, and Peter testify to and emphasize God's free and sovereign grace to undeserving sinners. We have seen drunkenness and shameful acts in Noah and his family. God delivered them. We have seen lying, deception, and fraud in Abraham. God justified him. We have seen adultery and murder in David, and he received steadfast love. We have seen selfish ambition, denial, betrayal, fear of man, and an undermining of the gospel itself, the heart of the gospel itself by Peter. And God restores him and recommissions him as an apostle. And so if we are to keep going on, when we do not, when we're walking in darkness and do not see any light of our own, consider the mixed nature of the lives of believers throughout redemptive history. Why? Because in their lives, we see our lives. Listen, when we see the reality of sin in our lives, we're like David. 
We're humbled and driven over and over again. We're like Paul to Christ, wretched man who will deliver me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, this realistic view of my life. That when I'm humbled by the reality of my ongoing failures and sins, I look again and again and again to Christ, to the free and sovereign grace that he gives to undeserving sinners that through his power and through his grace, he carries us all to the finish line. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this encouraging word to us this morning. And we thank you that despite our sin and our rebellion and our failures, we thank you that we see time and again throughout your word that that you are faithful to protect and preserve by your power and grace your people for the sake of Christ. And so encourage our hearts today and help us to look upward and outward from ourselves and to look to Christ who is the author and the finisher of our faith. We pray this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks, John. That's a message called How to Keep Going, Part 2. More from this mini-series coming up next time. The heart of Him We Proclaim is to bring you the gospel of good news each weekday. With each message, our prayer is you would hear, believe, and enjoy the gospel in your life. If you want to re-listen to or share any of these messages, you can find our smartphone app or locate our podcast by searching for Dr. John Fonville or Him We Proclaim. Him We Proclaim is a broadcast of Dr. John Fonville. If you would like to learn more about his local church in Jacksonville, Florida, you can visit ParamountChurch.com. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time.